Hello, and welcome to another episode of Marriage on a Tightrope. I'm Alan. And I'm Katie, and we're still married. Today is a fun interview. Is fun the right word for it? No, I think it's an important <laughs> no. I think it's an important interview. Today, if you didn't know, is Suicide Prevention Day. It's that's worldwide. September 10th. Right. We wanted to talk a little bit about mental health and dedicate some time to that. In this episode, there are triggers. There is a suicide attempt. So if that's something that would be triggering for you, that please... Is, it doesn't come out of the blue either. It's mentioned It's mentioned right before they talk about it. They say, now we're going to get into talking about suicide. So if that is a trigger for you, there is a warning right before it happens as well. And then the other trigger is something called limerence. I didn't know what this was. I had to look it up. Alan, what is limerence? Yeah, limerence is, and this is not me reading a definition, so I apologize if I get it wrong. Limerence is like an irrational, irrational, in- involuntary. involuntary attraction or need for a relationship with someone. It's a very codependent state of mind. And in this case, it was with someone other than the spouse. Correct. There's We go into great detail about that. So if extramarital, and there's nothing graphic or anything about it, but if If that type of situation is triggering for you, this is your warning as well. The third trigger that we would say is, I do talk in this episode. So if for some reason you just don't like hearing (laughs) my voice, I'm just kidding. That's my trigger. (laughs) No, this is a, a massively important thing to talk about. You know, I know that all of you may have heard or may have not have heard, but on our last episode, we mentioned someone in our own group who took their life. And it's one of those subjects that sometimes don't, doesn't get enough attention. There are people who are really struggling with mental health post-Mormonism. And we are lucky enough that we get to hear some of those stories. But I just want to say big kudos to this couple, Rachel and John, for telling their story. Because I think that it's something that needs to be talked about. I also think that there's a lot of shame wrapped up in it. And there's a lot of taboo thought around it. And so just big kudos to them for being open and willing enough to tell their story and share it with all of you. And the last thing before we get to the interview that I'd like to plug real quick is I have a dear friend that I grew up with who started a podcast called Mental Illness and Me. Her name is Katie Houston, and she's incredible. She interviewed Katie and I on our struggles with... What is it with you and Katie's? You know, this is funny. Can I do the side? (laughs) I dated so many Katie's growing up, I had little nicknames for them. There was Katie the Catholic. Uh, Katie, the Katie I'm talking about here was Katie of the Covenant. What did what was your name what was your name for Katie Perry? Oh gosh, Katie the Klepto? She liked to steal things? I no, don't know. she didn't. I didn't have one for her. No, and if you're wondering Katy Perry like the star Katy Perry, you would be correct. She was not Katy Perry. She was Katie Hudson. Hudson. But you were the most important Katie of all. You were Katie the Keeper. Yeah, it took him like three years to figure that one out. <laughs> There's not a lot of K words. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so Katie Houston. Hi, Katie. Hopefully you're listening. Uh, she interviewed Katie and I to talk about my bout with mental illness after my dad had passed. Pretty emotional episode. Many of you may know that story, but this gets into some pretty good detail about 38 minutes just about that experience that, that I went through with with my dad. And Katie tells her experience as well. So go check out the Mental Illness and Me podcast 
at least our episode. The other ones are great as well. And we hope you enjoy this interview with John and Rachel. We would like to welcome Rachel and John to Marriage on a Tightrope. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having us. Bienvenidos. (laughs) Yes, yes. Nada, nada. (laughs) We are so excited to have them both on. They've been good friends of ours for a while now. When when did we meet? April 2019. That's right, yeah. Hey, so a year and a half plus, right? Yeah. Dave, uh, John played a song for us. It wasn't for us, but he played a song. We listened to him play the guitar a little bit. Yeah. Or was it ukulele? It was a ukulele. Ukulele. Okay. Oh, man. I was wrong. Alan. We Alan talked about that earlier today, yeah. and I was like, I'm pretty sure it was ukulele. Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah. But I'm, I was right, but that's not important. But just for the record, I was right. That's not important. <laughs> but we're just going to say it for everyone to hear. <laughs> So we are super excited to have you on. Um, As some of you know, September is, is it Suicide Awareness Month? Is that what the official term is? So I think it depends on who you ask and what organization you look at. I think the ones that I see most commonly is Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. Okay. And there's like a national um, week in September. I forget exactly which days it is. It's like, this is our national uh, time that we're all going to focus on this. But then also like the whole month of September is similarly, you know, suicide prevention awareness. Right. And for those listeners who um, listened to our last episode, we talked at the very end about a friend of ours who had recently committed suicide, who was part of our Marriage on a Tightrope group. And so as we were talking about this, it became clear that this is something that we really wanted to talk to anyone out there who had a story to tell us and that would help us. And luckily, uh, Rachel and John were very kind enough to, uh, when we asked them um, to share their story with us. So we want to just jump right into it. Maybe we'll start with John. John, do you want to, do you and Rachel want to just go through a little bit of your backgrounds, maybe how you grew up and uh, how, how the church was influenced in your life and, and yeah, and how you met? Sure. I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, was born into a very conservative uh, kind of traditional our orthodox sort of Mormon family. Um, on my mom's side, uh, she was born into the church. Uh, they have like pioneer ancestors and all that stuff on my mom's side. My dad was a convert. He converted when he was 16, either 15 or 16, if I have my numbers right. And he was joined shortly after by the rest of his family including his parents. So I've been raised in the church my whole life. My parents were um, quite strict about, about what they lived their lives and how they parented. Their, their parenting style was uh, very, much, uh, very much revolved around doing the, the right thing, um, whatever that was to my parents. Which the, I imagine the church provided a lot of that Yes, it was structured for them. Heavily influenced by the church. Yes. Okay, so rapid fire. Was there caffeine in your house? Of course. (laughs) (laughs) All right, they're all for one. My dad would drink caffeine. My mom would not. 
Okay. When you were on vacation, did you go to church on Sundays? Yes. Oh, that's the big, that's a big orthodoxy text test right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are some of the other ones? TV or sports on Sundays? No. Mm. What about wearing church dress all my Sunday? Dad, my dad would watch TV, um, but I wasn't allowed to. Only the Lawrence Welk show. And then, <laughs> what was your, what was, sorry, what was your question? I think Rachel yeah. asked. Oh, what was your yeah, question? I said, in your family, did you guys wear your Sunday best all day no. long on Sunday? Nope. Okay. All right. You're on the Thankfully, three out of five on the Orthodox scale. Rachel, yeah. how about you? So I grew up on the East Coast. So I don't know. I feel like I had a bit of a different experience growing up in the church than people in like Arizona, like where John grew up. It's a lot different. Yeah. The more, the longer we're married and talk about things about the church, the more little differences come up. Anyway, so I grew up, I was one of the youngest in a very big family. So by the time my parents got around to having me, they were like way more chill. Um, I remember my mom even once saying to me before I started high school, she's like, this is a big deal. This is going to be really hard. You're going to be stressed out if you ever need a day to just like take off and relax and skip school. That's fine. You know, I trust you. Totally. Yeah. So like very different from how they raised my older siblings. Yeah. But, um, well, we still had like real, really pretty orthodox practices at church, um, relating to church at home. We didn't have caffeine in the house, like no caffeinated sodas. We all gave my dad a super hard time sometimes when he would like Sad. get a Coke or something. It's like you haven't actually had a childhood if you haven't had caffeine in your childhood. Oh, man. And we policed <laughs> each other so bad. I'm sure. Oh, yeah. And there were times we went through like phases where we would either like wear your Sunday best all day Sunday or not. And mm. I don't know. Yeah, but my like I said, my parents were like a lot more chill about stuff and more I think encouraging and supporting kind of parenting. Yeah. They were a lot more hands off than where my where my parents were more hands on, more like a kind of at least when I was younger, it's like a corporal punishment kind of system. Mm-hmm. Like you are, you do what you're supposed to do, or you get the belt, right? So mm-hmm. that was kind of my childhood. Um, sort of discipline system mm-hmm. that timeouts sitting in the corner, you know, random arbitrary punishments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it seemed like, yeah, not very, not a whole lot of um, understanding and empathy as a kid should probably get. Mm-hmm. So does that play a role later on um, yeah. when you're with your mental health? Yeah. And a, a big, uh, well, I mean, as far as, uh, from what I can tell, yeah, looking retrospectively back at my life, oh yeah, that that probably was influenced by my upbringing in this way. Why don't you uh, tell us how you both met? Yeah, because if one's in the east and one's in the west, right? There's either a meeting of the middle, or I would guess the east comes to the west. We'll see. Oh, <laughs> uh, we we met at BYU. Yeah, so, east came yeah. west. We we were both in choirs. And there was one day when we had like a combined choir. So I was in the women's chorus. He was in the concert choir, which is better than women's chorus, by the way. He's an amazing singer. Uh I'm like super okay. (laughs) I'm a very okay singer. Anyway, so there was a combined choir concert and I was looking for a ride home. So John was available and he lived in the same apartment complex. So he gave me a ride home and that's how we met. 
Great. And so you met and then how about, I mean, how long did you date before you got married and where'd you get married? So this is an interesting thing. So let's talk, let's talk a little bit. This kind of ties into the attachment thing, right? So I had a series of kind of intense relationships before we met. Um, Yeah, I would say, well, one of them was significantly codependent. I think Um, they all kind of were in a way. But that one was the most. Yeah. Like basically it wasn't healthy. Yeah. (laughs) To say the least. The way that I would act around women and girls that I like was uh, non conducive to a uh, healthy uh, relationship that grows and (laughs) develops uh, in a sustainable and pleasant manner so i was like like overly uh, attached to yeah yeah yeah. so i was so i would so i would love bomb i would love bomb people yes so like smothering way too much coming off as like really needy yeah like i didn't come off as really needy i was really needy. yeah and so it would be like letters and notes and calls and texts and and i would just boom like overwhelm the person and of course a few months in um they would be done these two relationships that i had prior to meeting rachel that were like the most influential of the relationships they both lasted about a year that was heavily influenced because of my lack of connection i think to my parents and probably to my sibling as well in some ways that had led me to kind of be starved in a way for, I think, um, attention and affection. And, um, you know, in the church where we're taught that marriage is the next best thing to what exaltation, right. Or something. I don't know. It's awesome. And you have to highly emphasized, (laughs) highly emphasized. You have to be married to get exalted. So it's kind of uh, a huge focus, and I was obsessed, I would say, uh, at some points with finding a partner. If I can interject here, too, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? So this is, like, stuff that we're, he and me are, like, coming to realize now because of, like, loads and loads of therapy and educating for both of us. Mm-hmm one of the reasons that he was so like love bombing these people and so needy with them was not just because he lacked attachment at home, but also that like there was that trauma, um, that corporal punishment and other like ways that his parents had treated Mm. him led to this internal trauma. Yeah. And then like having to repress that and seeking out coping mechanisms. So for him, like these relationships became these really effective coping mechanisms that when things are going really well and this girl is reciprocating feelings like yes i'm making my way to like the highest and holiest thing (laughs) this is the best and and most wonderful thing for my life like finally i will be happy and at peace you know and like seeing these relationships needed that kind of as a means to an end yeah so that's complete me exactly yeah you complete me you're my better half i need shut up (laughs) rachel why didn't you run away so when we (laughs) met okay so my turn when we met i was actually dating someone else and he was dating someone else as well so we were just like hey that's cool like let's chat and be friends we went on two dates yeah yeah yeah. we went on Mm -hmm. two dates and on the second date she's like i don't really not really feeling it. 
I'm, the summer's coming. I'm going back to, I don't really want to be in a relationship with anyone. So sayonara. And she went to, and we started chatting over the summer. Okay. Now you can continue. Okay, and then he got back together <laughs> with his girlfriend. I did. Right. So he was like in touch with her. And then I actually ended up starting dating someone too over the summer, but we kept in touch. And it was one of the first times that you tell someone like, yeah, we'll keep in touch. And we actually did. We were just like communicating all summer long. He would tell me about the ups and downs in his relationship. And I would yeah. tell him about mine. And we became each other's really, really good friends, like super close confidant mm-hmm. that we could be really vulnerable and safe with. And so we just got like closer and closer and closer together to the point where like his girlfriend started being really suspicious. (laughs) And and we were both like, no, no, no. We're just, we're super just friends, just friends, you know? Yeah. I was, I I even went to visit her in in her hometown over his girlfriend over that summer. I'll like asked her to marry me and everything. So that, that didn't go well, but um, I had, I wrote her a letter while I was there. And you wrote Rachel a letter. I wrote Rachel a letter while I was at my girlfriend's parents' house. <laughs> and I put it in the mailbox and she had, or somebody, I don't know who had opened the mailbox and found it before it got sent. <laughs> so she was pissed. John, sent, go put it in the neighbor's mailbox. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I guess I didn't think like, I, obviously like she's my friend so why would it be a big deal right. i was i was naive i was really naive yeah i finished my summer break i'm going back to byu for the fall uh john is there as well and uh it's like right when you get back to no no so right before he gets back to byu right, or right before the semester begins his girlfriend breaks up with him he was so so heartbroken because of course he was like so needy and needed this to work out so much and so yeah, because you're not complete. Because you're not yeah. complete unless you have a spouse. Mary yeah. in the temple, you're not complete. So, of course, I'm obsessing over it. He tells me, uh, as we're communicating, you know, long distance, he tells me, I am uh, feeling so, so depressed. And mm-hmm. I think I'm just going to go walk in front of a bus. And I was like, oh. I'm getting myself a ticket to Utah and I'm going to go prevent this and be like that friend with the shoulder to cry on and, uh, you know, not letting this happen. And then the next day you were, you were a lot better and I didn't end up going out early, but then it was like the summer was over in a couple weeks anyway. So we saw each other really soon. We just got like even closer and closer. Like I was saying before, because I was the one that was there for like a shoulder to cry on and someone to like, they're there, you know, everything's going to be okay. So then a couple of months in, I ended up breaking up with my boyfriend that I had over the summer. And then mm. a few months after that, John said, Hey, I, I think we should try dating. And I was like, what, why would we do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, why would we, yeah risk jeopardizing this amazing friendship we've had. I've never had this with anybody else in my whole life. Um, and he hadn't either. And what we had was like a really healthy relationship, which I think for you is I had never had that the first time. Yeah. The yeah. first time he'd ever had a healthy relationship because there was nothing on the line. There was nothing. Yeah. Was like, yeah we were totally friend zoned. It was so safe, yeah. you know? So he brings this up. It's like, 
what is this like January, 2007, January, early February. And I'm thinking and thinking and, and finally with some advice from some friends, they're like, why would you not date your best friend? Don't you want the person you marry to be your best friend? And I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. (laughs) Once I made that decision, like, then I started getting these like more romantic feelings from because other before it was just totally friend zoned, right? But then I kind of got like the butterflies and the Twitter patient, you know, and I was like, yes, yes, let's date. And and then so it was like February 2007. And so we dated for a couple months until the end of that semester, right? It's like May, I guess, ish. Mm-hmm. Um, and then his time at BYU was coming to an end he was going to transfer down to Arizona to do nursing school mm-hmm. and I was like hey so like what's going to happen with us I still have a year left at BYU what's going to happen can I take it over I had been planning to go down to Arizona apply for nursing school finish any prerequisites I had left down there um, so I went down to take a test for the nursing school and it was I went down with my sister and as soon as we got there I just thought to myself, like, as soon as I walked out of the car, what, what am I doing? Like, why, why do I not want Rachel with me? Of course, I want her with me. So I told my uh, parents and my sister, I'm, like, I, I'm going back. I'm going back tomorrow. And I turned around, went back and proposed just pretty much as soon as I got there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was very romantic. There was a knock at my door and I opened it up and there he was. And I was like, and I would totally been the lying. Last person I, I was like, yeah, it's so hot down here. Because <laughs> <laughs> we were talking on the phone like the yeah. night before. And yeah. anyway, yeah. So then he proposed and then uh, about like, I don't know, two, two and a half months later, we got married mm. in Utah mm. um, at Temple there. So that was summer of 2007. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to pretend like nothing interesting happened in the first 10 years of marriage. (laughs) (laughs) We know that we know that there did, of course. It's all humdrum anyway. (laughs) Right. But we'd love to get into talking uh, rather briefly, John, about the crisis of faith, the transition in your faith and kind of when that occurred. And that kind of will kickstart the conversation around here comes mental health. (laughs) <laughs> and then, mm-hmm. and the support that Rachel provided, et cetera. But can you talk to us a little bit about the the faith transition and what spawned that, that? Sure. If I had to like put any kind of definite date on when things started for me, it was it was in 2016 when Trump was running for the presidency, and I was Republican, had been Republican my whole life. Like, staunch conservative right and i was in school at the same time um after i graduated school i decided i'm going to put my time into into researching the church now i had gotten to the point probably prior to 2016 where i was kind of in a space of not full confidence in the church anymore but pretty sure it was still true right still had the old feelings of of my confirmation my testimony building experiences but, but trump trump just pushed you over the edge so so <laughs> over the edge talking like the guy the guy is just ridiculous um 
I, marriage on a tightrope does not necessarily endorse the ideas. Yeah. So as soon as I graduated and started doing more research into the church, I didn't take very long after that. It was probably like two months, probably two months into researching. Yeah, probably two months into researching when I was just, that's, that's it. I, mm-hmm. I know. I know that I'm not, I don't believe it anymore. You know, it didn't, it didn't take long for me to process that historical information and come to conclusions about that information. Mm-hmm. It's crazy uh, how quickly it can happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm like, I've been in, a, I've been a member for 38 years, 38 years. And then, and then you read a couple books and you listen to a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep, essentially. Yeah. I read No Man Knows My History and started listening to podcasts and I was screwed. <laughs> Don't do it. I mean, uh, before John, before we do get it. into what that started to introduce into your own personal mental health, yep. uh, Rachel, in those few months, how much did John tell you about what he was experiencing, what he was learning, and what was that experience like for you? You know, it was, it was nice. Actually, he told me right from the beginning, he said, I'm going to start looking into this. This is something that I've been wondering about for a while now, and I'm going to start reading and see what, what I find out. And I was like, Oh no, you don't. I was so scared and so angry. And we had our, it was like our first fight really ever. I was like, yelling i mean poor poor john like he's just trying to do what he thinks is right and just like be allowed (laughs) to ask questions you know and here i was like oh no he doesn't have that strong of a testimony anyways and he's not really great at like doing his personal prayers and reading his scriptures anyways i know where this is gonna lead right like if he reads all this anti-mormon stuff then it's going to end up He's not going to believe it anymore. I'm going to be a church widow. It's going to be like upon my shoulders to lead our family to uh, exaltation, you know, and, um, and I can just like see the end from the beginning. So, uh, yeah, I had a really, really hard, hard time with that at the very beginning. It's like the first five, four or five months of that. It's really, really hard for you. Well, it was, I started it, in the, in the end of the summer, I started yeah. studying probably like August. And what year again? 2018. Got it. Got it. So it was like 2018, August and September. And by like mid October, I, I knew I didn't want to Mm -hmm. really be part of it anymore. And then by December, I was just angry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I stayed angry for a long time. Mm -hmm. I'm still You you stayed angry until Until, maybe we'll do a follow-up episode. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So Rachel, you mentioned four to five months. What were, what calmed down at that point? What, I mean, there's some people that are listening now. There are some th- people that are listening now that, that are like four to five months. It's been two years and I, this is still really tough. Like what were some of the things that made it easier for you? Are you asking me? Yeah. Yes. Oh, for me, uh, your podcast. Because after oh, a few months, that was not a setup. By I, the way. <laughs> she she did honestly, yeah. My neighbor mm-hmm. uh, had like was in a mis- mixed faith marriage, and she recommended to. your podcast, and I was like, sure, fine, whatever. Like Ugh. maybe I'll maybe I'll pick it up, and 
And then I did, and then I binged all of the episodes that you guys had done up until then, because mm-hmm. you guys started, what, beginning of 2018, it helped, right? helped her right. a lot. It was massively helpful. For one, it helped me feel like, okay, don't panic. Alone. You don't have to panic. At no point in this thing do you need to panic. And that was like biggest takeaway number one. And then, like, I remember I'd be like walking with my kids to school with my earbuds in, just listening uh filling up my head with as much of your podcast as fast as possible. Cause I was like breathing this stuff, you know, my kids would be like, mom, mommy, shh, shh. quiet kids. Mom's <laughs> yes. <laughs> We're hurting your relationship with your children. Perfect. Process yeah. Mom is learning how to save my marriage. Be quiet. <laughs> You're next. So yeah, honestly, that was massively helpful. And then also there was this time when John uh, really made things clear for me. He said, you know, it, there comes a point when, I have all these, these feelings, right? Like confirmations from the Holy ghost and things that I, that I feel that are, and that I remember having feelings about. And then on the other hand, there's all these like facts that I've learned and all this like logic and reasoning information. And at some point, like one really outweighs the other and I can't just live on just my feelings anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I had this kind of aha moment that like he is working with all the information and all the life experience and personal judgment that he has. He's doing this with integrity. So much really life honest experience. About this. So much and so I, I actually came <laughs> to like totally respect his decision. And I had, I had read enough uh, about the stuff that he was learning about to understand like, okay, I get it. I see there are valid concerns here. And that made me just like suddenly I think within like 24 hours, I think come to this feeling like it's okay. It's it's all right. I I respect his decision and it was mutual too, that he totally respected my decision to stay and trusted me. So there was this like mutual trust back and forth Mm -hmm. as well. So that, that really made things so much better. I mean, there were still hard times. Like when I realized one moment that our oldest would be baptized in two years and I was like, Oh, he's not going to be the one to do the baptism. And that was like fresh heartache all over again. And then um, like you were saying, by December, 2018, he told me like, I'm going to take my name off the church records. And I like the next morning I ran to a neighbor's house and we just like sobbed in each other's arms. And she just let me like all the ugly crying, all like the wet tears on her shoulders so, so much grief. So although I was in like a really okay place, there were still those times that was like opening up, I, I don't know, I guess like Pandora's box of grief, you know, all over again. So there's, we still had some of those moments. They still happen to us too. Yeah, I know. To everyone. John, yeah. do you want to take us through uh, what, what led to some of your, like the mental health crisis that that you ultimately, what we're getting to, right? On the program, to take us through that. (laughs) By December, I had become quite angry. I had decided I wanted to remove my name from the church, um, probably in late December, and decided I wanted to start drinking. I told her I wanted to start drinking on Christmas Eve. Awesome decision. Oh, jeez. Best decision of my life. Biggest mistake since the mailbox fiasco. (laughs) Christmas Day. Yeah. 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 Oh, was it Christmas Day? It was Christmas Day. I was like, why why today of all days? And then I I couldn't keep it in anymore. I was like, swollen red eyes the whole day. Yeah. um, I didn't tell you in the morning. 
Whatever. Anyway, <laughs> you wrapped a note and put it anyway, under the Christmas tree. So she was so she was like pushed to her limit as far as like me making changes. So like stop wearing garments, uh, started drinking, uh, told her I wanted to leave the church, stopped mm-hmm. going to church, and filed my notary letter and resignation and all of that mm-hmm. within four months. Three months? Three months. Within three months. So in between de- December and March, all that happened. As all of that happened, and I was full of indignation, right, at, at being deceived, that's um, how I felt. My ex-girlfriend, my first girlfriend, the first woman I ever loved, right, um, like really loved, she uh, reached out to me on Facebook, and she said, I'm thinking about you and really concerned. I saw your post that you posted on Facebook. And, and I just wanted to let you know that you, you're, you're awesome. And you always have been, and you've been such a great influence in my life. And I'll always, always remember you. And I was like, okay, Um, that happened. I didn't expect that to happen. And there were several experiences in between when we first met and last year, last year, that made me think she would never be in my life again. And she just appeared. And when we were first together, her parents basically broke us up. And so I have had, have, it's better, a little bit better now because of everything that happened last year. But I had a lot of anger toward her family and i read and i i messaged messaged her back and i said hey let's let's start a correspondence because it would be good to talk through some of these things it would probably be really good for me and maybe good for you too because i knew she had been traumatized by the whole thing with her family and our breakup because it was really really awful back in 2003 so it's really really a long time ago um but I uh, kind of talked about how I had attachment issues. So when I met her after I came home from a mission and I felt like she was the most incredible, amazing woman, right? So I've, I've come to talk with my therapist about it and what I was reaching for was like the female ideal, right? That I had been told was the female ideal um, spiritual musical um uh extroverted mm-hmm. um dancer you know like all the things right so i was really attached to her and then we broke up 17 years ago and then last year she shows up again and i and it's um it didn't take long for me to start feeling a lot of emotion again, not just, Oh, I'm glad she's talking to me again. It was like grief, right? Grief. I remember driving home after she had uh, reached out to me a couple, just a couple days after she had reached out to me. And I was just like a complete and utter mess coming home, just thinking about my past experiences with her. So there was a lot of, um, a lot of trauma, I would say is trauma. Mm-hmm. A lot of unprocessed emotions from 20 years 
previous. Mm -hmm. So when I started cultivating this relationship again, 20 years, you know, I'm rounding up three years, almost two decades. How's that sound? (laughs) Almost two decades later. (laughs) um, (laughs) I latched onto her as an escape and an, an, a, a, co- a coping tool. Mm-hmm. Rachel, I'm listening to this and I'm feeling like super uncomfortable. Like, yeah. And, and I'm, and I'm just, I'm just saying because like, wow, how are you sitting right next to him? Why are you <laughs> saying these things? Like, honestly, yeah. I'm feeling like, holy cow, if Alan were saying these things, I would be smacking him upside the head. So Rachel, like, t- like, yeah, I would love for to hear, like, y- what are you thinking and feeling? And how do you, do you even know that this is going on? Yeah, so I knew about everything. Every communication that they had back and forth, I was there for. So I read every message that she would send to him or he would send to her. It's a really interesting situation. Yeah. And like, well, in the beginning, when she first reached out, I was like, that's really cool. Like, I know both he and her have a lot of trauma from what happened to them way back when. Right. And I was like, I'm super secure with our relationship. I'm not afraid of anything happening. And I'm like literally here with everything too. So everything was like very above board. Their communications were actually like bringing up some happy memories for him too. And for the first time in many months, he wasn't angry yeah. anymore. Yes. And I was like, oh my gosh, like he's getting back <laughs> to his normal self. It's like six months it, of being angry. Yeah. And then all of a sudden I was Mr. Unicorns and Rainbows. Well, it, it wasn't like that at first, but it was like just back to his normal self. And I was like, this is a really good thing for him. This is healthy. Like mm-hmm. there's, there's nothing going on that's behind closed doors. There's nothing secretive. Um, there's nothing that I need to worry about. Like, this is fine. And, um, and I was even encouraging it, like seeing how this was really helpful for him. And it seemed like it was helpful for her too. Like mm-hmm. they're finally getting closure and they're finally able to like process some stuff. Um, yeah. And so it actually was like really helpful mm-hmm. in the beginning. Yeah. And then as time went on, I could see he was getting like more and more attached to her and more and more, it became more of a like romantic thing. And then I was like, I'm not sure I like this anymore. <laughs> and, and then it got to the point, may I? It got to the point where it, it he started having extreme emotions. So he would be like extremely elated with every communication and every, and we would like see her in person and hang out. And like me and her would talk about like raising our kids and, you know, all the mom stuff. And we became really close friends and she was really great. She was really nice. So that was fun. But then, yeah, his feelings started being more, being more extreme. So he'd be like, uh, so elated when we got to visit her, help her, you know, whatever, and, and getting communications and getting the text messages. And, and then when there was a lack of communication Mm -hmm. or like somebody, she let us know someone had hurt her in some way, then it was like these really, really low lows Mm -hmm. and this like super intense anger coming back. What I recognize is like, this is not him. This is not himself. This is not normal. This is not like a person just falling out of love with their marriage and falling in love with someone else. 
this is extreme stuff. And it was like, almost like a drug, you know? Um, mm. And it got so bad. One night he, it was really late at night. There was a uh, communication and someone had hurt her again. And he got so depressed and so angry. He started like not <laughs> being able to breathe. Do you want to talk about this part? Punched holes in the wall. So I had a panic attack, which I'd never had before. Mm-hmm. So it scared me a lot. This is a weird situation, right? I never thought I would be in this situation. Mm-hmm. She never thought she would be in this situation. So, okay. So this, this relationship that I had with her was so codependent. I felt even last year, like I still have never got to tell her how I felt. Right. So now I'm going to be able to tell her how I felt and feel. Cause when she came around, I was, I just realized I've never stopped feeling, feeling strong feelings for this person. Mm-hmm. So when she came around, I, and, and because she's in a situation where she's struggling to find happiness and, and positivity, I decided that I was going to be that person. Right. And so I'm like going to save the relationship. This is typical codependent behavior, mm-hmm. which I learned after I went to the site facility for a month. We were on the phone call. We hung up the phone and I just remember being so angry at what she had just said about how she was being treated. I got up and I threw a bunch of pillows and then I punched a hole in the wall and I got on my motorcycle and I drove around Phoenix at like 120, 30 miles an hour just because I didn't have any... I, I, I gave zero Fs about injuring myself um, or dying at the time. So I did that. I went to the store. It's like, I'm just getting alcohol maybe will help. So I got some alcohol, came home, drank like one uh, alcoholic cider and then just lost it. I started crying, sobbing and hyperventilating and feeling this this overwhelming feeling of being trapped i'm gonna pause you right there it wasn't the alcohol that did that just so you know i just saw the listeners are clear like he's a big man like he it takes a lot of alcohol to like actually do anything for him so just wanted to make that clear i woke i woke her up and i said what did i say i I need you or something like that yeah something like that i need help or something so she came out and tried to calm me down didn't work she ended up calling a crisis hotline and the crisis counselor wanted to talk to me and i said no and so she said i'm just taking him to the hospital well the crisis okay so he had also said uh i just want to die i just want to die and he said that over and over and over so i called this like suicide suicide hotline and their crisis counselor uh they said we have a team that can be out there within like about 10 hours. And I was like, 10 hours. <laughs> 10 He's hours. not going to be alive in 10 hours. What am I supposed to do? So they said, go to the ER. So I, t- so I called up my neighbor uh, to come and like babysit like my kids at 2 a.m. Yeah. And I had to take him to the ER. Awesome, He's acting totally crazy yeah. and can hardly even remember that night. Um, they take him into the room and the staff there, they're like very clearly 
and quickly taking out everything from the room, you know, that could be yeah. a hazard. Um, he has to give up his phone, all, all of his stuff and like only wear a hospital gown that has no tires on it, you know, that kind of thing. Red gown. Yes, the red gown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so he sits there, he sits and waits. Um, they give him a sedative, which was exactly what he needed. Thank yes. goodness for that. He waits in the ER and he waits there for, I want to say, to see about 10 hours. Yeah, 10 yeah. Hours. And then the crisis team comes, finally. But at least he was safe. You know, at least he was in a safe place. So they came, they asked him a series of questions, and they said, based on what you're telling us, we want you to go to this psychiatric hospital and stay there for a little while. You know, you'll get some psychiatric care. We'll see a therapist. And so we're going we're gonna to transport you over as soon as they have as soon as they call us back and see that they have an available spot. So we did that. And then he gets there. Um, he spends about five days there, I think. And yeah. then, and then they're like, okay, we're going to release you now. Um, we didn't know going in. They don't, they don't really want to let you out, you know, until they're sure you're not going to hurt yourself, which John had a big problem with being like yeah. feeling trapped and not really having access to his phone <laughs> or anything. And it's kind of boring. Yeah. Well, you know, if you've, if you've never been in a psych hospital, you're locked in, right? You're locked in. You have nothing. You have a phone that you can use. The cord's about that long and it's attached to the wall. You're with other people and you don't know what those other people mm-hmm. are going to be like. And, and you can only call your loved ones mm-hmm. at certain times of the day. Yep. So it was very anxiety producing. I just mm-hmm. felt like a, a trapped animal. Yeah. Right. Obviously, needed. I needed to be there, and I knew mm-hmm. that. But I, I when I got to the hospital, I just paced. I paced for like three hours, just crying in the hallway. When I got home from my mission, I was a psych tech for a few years. Oh, yeah. Really. At, at um, the Provo Utah Valley Regional um, Hospital. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, that's exactly it. They give you the golf golf size pencils, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And yeah, I was uh, like, what, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How am I supposed able, to write that? Yeah. Yeah. Group therapy, you know, yes. you write with these tiny pieces of pencil. Um, and then, you know, you have visiting hours once a day from for an hour and that was it. And, and we had like a more acute side, right? Mm-hmm. People who were um, probably pretty chronically uh-huh. mentally ill. And then, and then the other side, which it, people who were just had, you know, breakdowns and, um, it's very hard to see, it's, especially John. I mean, that must have been really hard to be there without your support system, your support network. Mm-hmm. Did you have any any type of self awareness that as to why you were there, <laughs> or as I mean, to like like what like like realizing oh some of the behaviors that I've been exhibiting is has put me here. I don't think that I had a grasp on how deeply troubled I was. Mm -hmm. I don't think I had a grasp on exactly why my emotional response was so violent. I don't, I don't think so. No. Cause I I remember, I remember before maybe it was actually after. Yeah. While he was there, he had this really great psychiatrist. Helpful. The one who told me to. (laughs) (laughs) He gives him like this book to read and it's about like love addiction addiction, is what it's called. 
And, uh, and John's like, I don't have that. Mm -hmm. And, and when he explained it to me, I was like, that doesn't sound like it at all either. And the psychiatrist said, was it like your last day there or different day? It was the last day. It was the last day there. He said, you know, good job reading that book. Yeah. Good job reading the book. In some places they call what you have love addiction from where I come from, it just sounds like true love. (laughs) And I was like, Ready to swear for the first time in my life. I was like, "Excuse I, me." I think you actually he went there to I think get you all for this. Might have sworn for the first time. In I, think I, oh, I think wow. I think yeah. I so had some very big words. You're saying that to the supportive wife and uh, yeah. yeah. So that happened. That was like the first uh, person who said that to me. Yeah. Then about a month later, he was feeling suicidal again, really, really needed to, to see a psychiatrist. Like, so wait, really he's still in contact with this woman? Yes, yes. And I'm, <laughs> I'm like just dying over here. Like, this is not healthy. We need to not be doing this. We need to be Yeah, she's like, this is, this is causing your emotions to spiral out of control. This, yeah. is, mm-hmm. this is the problem. And I'm like, no, no, that's not the problem. Right. I don't, I, the problem is something else. <laughs> It's the church. I don't even know. Like, <laughs> what did I? Know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I I felt like I had no idea what what was happening to right. me. Because right. I, I remember, and I can say this because this is not spoiling anything. I remember sitting against a wall after I got admitted to the hospital twice, and I was like hitting my head against the wall. Right? I have no idea what's wrong, and I kept saying that yeah. over and over. What's wrong with me? Something's broken inside of me. Yes. And I like literally like hitting the head on the wall. I started cutting too uh, during this whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Self-harm is another, can be an effective, an effective coping mechanism. Not a healthy one, but can feel effective at helping to numb that, that deep, deep pain inside. Yeah. Anyway. So, um, so yeah, like a month later, he really, really needed to see a psychiatrist. And there we have, we haven't seen a psychiatrist yet. The follow-up that I had been, set up Mm -hmm. in the previous hospital i couldn't see a psychiatrist for a month and a half which is nuts so Mm -hmm. my pcp my primary care physician recommended that i go to another facility so i went Mm -hmm. to another facility for a night facility meaning another another acute hospital so everything was taken away and all that stuff i went through that whole thing again because then he could see the psychiatrist like within 24 hours and i could get better follow-up yes so after i went to the hospital one more night they released me the next day with a follow-up plan that got me to see a psychiatrist probably like a week, a week or two. So I, I did that and we started seeing another therapist. Mm-hmm. I mean, I started seeing a therapist and the therapist told me, I'm like telling him the backstory, right? I met with him for two hours, told him the backstory. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is the ex-girlfriend situation. This is my wife's situation. And, and I don't know what to do. I'm, I just feel like I'm torn, like totally torn between two, between two impossibilities Mm -hmm. because I can't help this person like I want to, even though I love her and I can't actually do anything because it would hurt Rachel Mm -hmm. and I don't want to hurt Rachel because I love Rachel. It was very confusing. I eventually got to the point in therapy (laughs) where I mentioned all of these feelings and he was like writing up on the board furiously, you know, and then after he's done, it's like, hmm. Okay, let me draw this triangle up on the board. This relationship triangle. You've got, um, you've got the, you know, this one over here. This is like looks, and then this one is intelligence, and then this one is like emotion or something like that. And and when we are fulfilling all of the points, then we have it's like total fulfillment or it's something. It's like the, the three pillars some, of love. Yeah, it's like some yeah. some fulfillment 
you know, basically true love, right? That's what yeah. he was saying. And he said, so the question you need to ask yourself, this is the first meeting that I had with this guy, right? And he was like, so is, it sounds like with your wife, you're still in that friend zone yeah, from friend, where you guys your first wife met. Is, your wife is friend zoned. Yep. The, the real question you need to ask yourself is, do you want to settle or do you want to go for it? You want to follow was, your heart is what he said. He said, do you both. want to settle or do you want to follow your heart? Right. How, how your do heart. these people have degrees? Gosh. Okay. Right. I know. No. So like, yeah, obviously when I'm thinking about it now, wow, that's like, that's like the worst advice. Absolute ever. gasoline <laughs> on a trash fire. Yep. Yeah. So much gasoline on it. And now yeah, I had two now professionals. Like so validated. Two professionals right? who, to- who told me my feelings were completely 100% but, valid and I should pursue them. So now that he feels really, really validated about all these feelings for this other woman and that pursuing her really is what's going to bring him true happiness. Because again, <laughs> all these feelings of codependency and needing and like really unhealthy attachment came flooding back. Right. Yeah. So her her presence like triggered all of this stuff that is that his brain had repressed really well for all these years. And now it's just like, it was like going to like the most effective therapy session of dredging (laughs) up all of the emotion that you've ever had about something that's terrible and just putting it right at the front of my brain and feeling it 24-7 for but, how long was it? Six months? So the, so this made his yeah, like his inner months. self just like be so much at war with each other now because now he's feeling so validated about these feelings, but he can't leave his wonderful wife mm-hmm. and kids. Like she is wonderful. I'm the greatest. I'm the best friend he's ever had. The <laughs> one and only healthy relationship he's ever had. Like, why would you want to leave that? Come on. But I'm over here like understanding this is not it's him. Irrational. Like, th- yeah, he's being irrational. These experts don't know what they're talking <laughs> about. They know what John has told them yeah. in their brief snapshot of time with him. And I have to say, like, I wasn't, I wasn't like, I really just want to be with this woman, like, hundred yeah. percent, and not be with my wife anymore. <laughs> like, it's, it's really interesting that they gave me that advice. Like, obviously, I wanted, I wanted to have. A relationship with this person because I felt like I needed to be mm-hmm. there for her to save her right obviously I can't save her but I felt that like driving need to it's like the same feeling that you would feel if your child was suffering mm-hmm. right your mm-hmm. child's suffering yeah your child's getting abused and you're like I can help with that mm-hmm. I know I can help with that I'm gonna go help with that and then go do it I felt kind of the same sort of drive to to help her and so this is something that we learned later again like in retrospect um helping us understand see clearly like what was going on this is what our our brains do like this is what our brains are are designed to do to protect us right and find these coping mechanisms because our survival depends on it whatever your coping mechanisms end up being um, in his case, it was this like obsessive compulsive behavior. And it's just like anybody with OCD, like their coping mechanism is like their brain is saying, I need to say like, wash my hands until they bleed, you know, um, or I need to lock my door a certain number of times. And my brain is telling me I need this for my survival. I can't, I can't just ignore it. I can't just go to mm-hmm. bed without checking my door locks 
or doing whatever my obsessive compulsive behavior is. I can't, I literally can't do it. Even though it's a hassle, even though I know, I know it's irrational. My brain is telling me I absolutely need this for survival. So take us, take us to like the second, maybe the second breakdown, because I think that leads you to go to the treatment center. Is that right? A few days before that happened, I was like Googling, like, what is going on with my husband? Please Mm. computer internet, tell me what's happening with Mm -hmm. him. And I discovered that there's actually this term called limerence. And limerence is this type of obsessive compulsive behavior that makes a person want to be with another person, like in a relationship. And it's not based on any kind of like um, sexual attraction. It's just this attraction, this like need for this person in your life. And it's, it's, like it's different person. from, it's different from regular falling in love because it's marked by these extremes, these extremely high highs and these extremely low lows that when you're with the person, you're in ecstasy, when you're away from them or when they've shown like the slightest bit of rejection, mm, you're like in the pit of despair, you know, and like, I must getting yeah. <laughs> and when they break up with you, it's actually a lot more common than we think. And since we've shared our story with <laughs> so a many couple, people are like, Oh yeah, yeah that exact same literally two people very, very, very close to us said, yeah, I know and exactly I, what you're talking about. I've, I've two other coworkers I've talked to who are like, yeah, I've been through a very similar experience. That's right. I think pe- this happens to people way more often than we know. Yeah. And, and we went, so to- nobody even wants to talk about it because why would you talk about it? Well, and if you don't know that there's a term for it. Yeah. But it's like, culturally it's taboo yeah it's yeah. it's taboo to have well, a relationship it's a good reason else, right? <laughs> you want to be the one not, that's like uh, yeah i'm not, I'm not saying spouse. i'm not saying that what i did was right but i just don't think your brain could have done anything different i don't I like don't it think, was acting in exactly yeah. the way that it's meant I, to act yeah. and we even went to a meetup last had, when you guys were here and john shared right. his story and someone there was like that's me <laughs> Yeah. Well, I I had to look up limerence when you sent me the word because I didn't really know what it was. And it, and it says in the description that it, um, limerence can also be defined as an involuntary state of intense romantic desire. I think that's a good way to put it. Yes. And that was really key for me too. Like recognizing this is involuntary and Mm -hmm. this is a symptom of a deeper root issue. So let me bring it up to this point. So I discovered that and I, I texted this to her too. And like, Hey, this is what John's got for you. Cause she and I had been talking in the sidelines too, like behind John's back. Like, this is messed up. This needs to be, t- be stopped. And she was in like total agreement with me. Didn't but, stop talking to him though. Right. So when she would talk to Rachel, she'd be like, Oh yeah, I never intended for him to misinterpret that statement. But when she would say it to me, You know, like, there are so many things that I wish I could tell you, but I can't. I still feel like I'm, like, I can't share my full feelings with you. That's what she told me. she's playing both sides. So, like, yeah, she's totally manipulating me, right? And so she was doing that to me while she's saying the same thing, the different, like, completely opposite thing to Rachel. Yeah, it was a little bit, a little bit shit. I don't, I don't want to throw her under the bus, but... So girl, I would, I'm I'm surprised (laughs) you're not swearing right now because that's what I would be doing. Just putting it out there. Okay, go ahead. Thank you for the validation. 
I sent this to her. I sent it to him. I sent it to his therapist. I was like, guys, this is what's going on. It's limerence. So now we're all on the same page. Yeah. And his therapist was like, oh, I never heard of that. But yeah, that's spot on. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Gaslight on the garbage fire. (laughs) So things really come to a point where it's like, so it's a few days after that. He's like sobbing in tears, feeling really suicidal again. And I was like, just talk to her, you know, just talk to her. Let's just like have a conclusion to all of this and just like be done. You need to like break up, so to speak, you know? Yeah. And that to me was an impossibility. And I really don't want to go into all of that. I couldn't conceptualize not having this person in my life anymore. Yeah. Right. So, so when they finally did like have it and I was present for all of this, when they finally did like have it out and she was like, I'm done going to talk to you anymore and i'm going to just like ghost you basically john was quiet super quiet because not crying not doing anything not banging his head on the wall not angry not anything just quiet and that's when i knew like oh no this has gone to like a new level i put the kids to bed and i just sit by him and i talk to him yeah and at this point i'm like depressed all the time right right uh, like severely depressed Extremely. where i'm not uh, talking i'm not talking period we're crying just not, crying. not talking just crying or staring off into space ignoring everything mm-hmm. right so my she would be talking to me my kids would be talking to me and i'm just mm-hmm. blank stare yeah it was it was really bad here we're going to talk about some really especially triggering things so for any of you listeners who don't want to hear the next part like definitely skip ahead a few minutes this is even more emotional than what we've talked about so far okay mm-hmm. as we're talking and i'm like talking him away from the edge talking um, about suicide now i That's what she's talking about i didn't know but yeah. at the time he had i got rid of all the guns in the house <laughs> all the knives i i hidden his keys i was like babysitting him mm-hmm. 24 7 it was exhausting yeah, she took I, my wallet and my i had his wallet yeah there was no way he could buy she anything he couldn't go any yeah i had like always always hid the keys he could never have them he'd never find them there was one time when i hung them back up on the hook unloading the groceries Most and things. then i i remembered like oh no i accidentally left the keys on the hook and i looked and they were gone and i was like oh no and i raced out to the garage and he'd had the keys and he was about to get in the car but just like staring off into space I couldn't make a decision as to what I wanted to do. Give me the damn keys, you know? (laughs) So anyway, this night, right. We're having this conversation and I, and, and I feel like, okay, he's, he's all right. I'm going to go to bed. I have to get some sleep. So I didn't know, but at the time he had found the key to our locked shotgun. It was like the only firearm in the house, but we lost the key a long time ago. Like, what's the point in taking it out? It's got the the lock on it. It's got the lock on it and we're never going to be able to open it. But he found the key. I remembered where the key was, which is, which was so bizarre because your brain wasn't working otherwise. I I hadn't used the key in like two years. Loaded it. Mm -hmm. It was ready to go. He had drafted his goodbye note to me on his phone he was just waiting for me to go to sleep mm-hmm. so he could drive out to the desert he was gonna um make like one last phone call so we would know where he was and then shoot himself and be done mm-hmm. and not have this pain anymore not have this internal warfare anymore it's the easy solution right 
simple, not easy. Simple. So, um, for me, <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, she didn't. Thankfully, I had said like just happened to say like just the right combination of words mm-hmm. that made him back down and not decide to go through with it. The next day, you had therapy, right? Oh, yeah. um, and and he told me. I found out and I was like, oh my gosh, it was so close. We were so, so close. And I'm like freaking out. And I'm telling his therapist, because he had a therapy appointment like that day or the next day, I'm telling his therapist, um, if you don't petition to have him committed to a psych facility, I will. She Because I, I can't do this anymore. I'm, she told me she was going to petition me. And I said, if you petition me, mm-hmm. we're done. Yeah, like our marriage is done. That's, I will never forgive you for that. That's the point that we had come to, Yeah, which was really, really bad. So, so um, for those of you who don't know what a petition is, you send documentation to the court that shows that you are not. You're not a sound mind. Yeah. Right. And mm-hmm. you get sent to the state hospital and the judge approves it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they usually do. Yeah. And if you do get sent to the state hospital, again, they don't send you home until they think you're ready to go home. So yeah. you're kind of like a prisoner. And it's like it, it feels like three months. being a prisoner. Yeah. And three it's to like, six months, they told me. Yeah. If I had gotten petitioned. Yeah. So we, he probably would have lost his job. We'd have lost the house. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, but he'd be like, so. So his therapist talked with him and. He, he gave me a decision. Do you want to, this was the therapist who had given me the bad advice, right? So he gave me good Same advice. Person. He gave me good advice this time. So mm-hmm. not completely. Not without, totally useless. Without hope, right? <laughs> so he said, really, you have two choices to make. One is kill yourself. And you know how that's going to end. You know the possibilities of that. It's you're, you're done. And you have no more opportunities. But if you stay alive and you go get treatment, you have an unlimited number of opportunities before you. And in my brain, I'm like, oh, that means that I can be with her. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. But I like your involuntary your involuntary clause in your limerence uh, definition, mm-hmm. Katie, <laughs> uh, yeah. because I really felt, I really felt like it was involuntary. Absolutely. It was, yeah. it was like, like somebody hitting a hammer on your <laughs> knee when they're checking your reflexes. I, I felt like I had no control over the whole situation. I felt like, like when they say a spell is being cast, like mm-hmm. that was true, legit magic. That's how it felt. Mm-hmm. So I come in, John tells me, choosing to live and his therapist makes me promise to tell him like where are you going to send him okay this is i recommend a residential treatment program so not just like short little hospital stays like he's had so far he needs like a serious long program at a residential place where he can be safe you know yeah i'll have professionals there to help him and I was like and I don't have to babysit him anymore <laughs> thank goodness someone like qualified professionals are going to take care of him from the moment we left there I was like non-stop checking for a facility and especially someone that would take our insurance because I knew these would it would end up being like 60 to 70 thousand dollars out of pocket if we had to pay out of pocket mm-hmm. for like about a month long stay and then who knows if he would be there a month or two months or three months. So it was really important for me to find somewhere within our insurance network. So I was like looking high and low, calling up place after place after place, looking all over the internet. She did so finally, much research. Finally, I found one like two days later and um, called them up. They said they had an opening. They interviewed him on the phone. 
and she was in Tennessee all the way across the country yeah so and he went like we got the first flight out yeah so that's kind of like what brought him all the way to like having that huge crisis this enormous uh breakdown and then into this psychiatric residential treatment center yeah kind of breaking away from the the timeline like what ended up being the most helpful that's part a part b is like to, to this day are there things based on your understanding of of how your brain works and all the help that you've gotten that you still have to do today in order to stave off some of those problems you've had in the past good question um first question first one was yeah cool. what one. yeah first one was basically like condense the you go to the psychiatric okay. uh, residential so, facility so yeah condense that what ended up helping you get out of crisis mode it's so i mean there was so much stuff that happened right so you're you're in group therapy 5 hours a day you're seeing the psychiatrist uh once or twice weekly you're seeing your th- therapist twice weekly uh, plus you have like horse therapy and all these other types of therapy, recreation therapy and whatnot. And, you know, they have um, like lectures and things too, to teach you about the different Mm -hmm. things that are going on in your life, like coping and poor coping, which, which I was doing and they gave me the information on the codependency. And like, I totally, I read through it and Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, so I obviously am uh, severely codependent with this person. And I need to start addressing those things. And during the stay, I had, you know, uh, meditation sessions and things like that, that that would be facilitated by therapists. And there was two things. And I'll share both of them because they were really actually quite meaningful. The third week there, second and a half week there, when I was finally starting to see some... uh, improvement in mood and all of the symptoms that I was experiencing, like my emotional roller coaster started to kind of die down a little bit. I got pneumonia and I was breathing progressively worse throughout that following four days. And eventually I, I was on breathing treatments like every two hours and I was this close to calling the ambulance to come and get me, but I had them take me to the hospital at, uh, eventually. And I, they found out I had sepsis. I was at the beginning uh, of being very ill. So it was like they, a little bit ironically funny <laughs> that like we'd saved him from suicide all the way to like come and die of pneumonia and sepsis <laughs> alone yeah. at this hospital in Tennessee. Yeah. So <laughs> I get to the ER, and by the time I get to the ER, I'm starting to become delirious. I've got respiratory alkalosis and I'm, uh, my body's not doing well, right? And they do all the tests and they start all the antibiotics and they start the IV fluids and I've got holes in me and tubes. And then after I was stabilized, the nurse is like, bye, I'm going to be back in an hour. And everybody left within like a minute, right? Everybody's there, everybody's gone. And I'm just sitting there and I just remember feeling this feeling of uh, intense, like loneliness, right? And the need to, to be, I don't want to say cared for. I don't know if that's exactly right. I felt lonely and, and I wanted to Maybe not the be. The need able- for like connection. Yeah, that. yeah. 
because you are totally disconnected from everything that's outside, right? Not mm-hmm. only phone, I have letters that I can write, but I'm not getting any letters in a timely fashion by the time I'm sick here, right? I'm like barely starting to get letters. I get into the ER and they leave. And while I'm sitting there thinking about how lonely I am, I start crying, right? Like start pitying myself for being sick in the middle of this state when I know nobody and I'm in this place for suicidal people and got these issues going on. So I was, I was quite sad. And then my therapy training, I guess, kicked in and I said, nobody's going to come and save you. I said it to myself. This is like, I said this to myself out loud. I'm crying. (laughs) No one's going to come and save you. No one's coming here. You're here alone and you're enough. That's what I said to myself out loud. You're enough. I am enough. I'm enough. I'm here with myself. And I think that was like one of the first times when I actually felt like, okay. And not during my time at residential psychiatric facility, I felt like not lonely for the first time in three weeks. Well, probably longer than that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Months. Right. Because I had been isolating myself. And, but that was the big, probably, probably the biggest experience, which is funny because you go to the residential psych- psychiatric <laughs> facility to get fixed, right? And you assume that you're going to get fixed there, but I actually got fixed in the ER <laughs> leaving there. But that was probably the most influential. And then I came back into three more days after I got out of the hospital and then I was done with the program. So I feel like that was probably the best thing to happen to me mm-hmm. Yeah, while I was there. Rachel, um, I can imagine that it was very difficult for you to be in Arizona while he was in Tennessee doing his treatments and having, I mean, probably less contact than you ever had before, right? <laughs> so tell me, how do, you, how do you keep going? I mean, you found the t- residential treatment center for him. You got him there. You talked about all the things you did to help um, keep them alive. What What are the things that you you were able to do for yourself? Or, I mean, how did you survive through that time? Do you know, actually, when he left, I was so relieved. <laughs> she was relieved. I didn't miss him at all. Because <laughs> she'd been so worried about me. Yeah, because you know. the months leading up to it were so stressful and so, like, I'm responsible for his life, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like the, every, every little thing I did, and, even like where I put the keys was like a life or death and, situation. And I, and, and things that I did didn't make her feel any better about herself. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Cause yeah. she's feeling inadequate and all of these other feelings that go along with feeling abandoned. Right. Yeah. So him being in Tennessee was actually like the easiest part because <laughs> finally, like I didn't have to worry about him, you know, someone else is taking care of it. Right. But you're, you're but, taking care of your kids and yeah, I mean, there's a and, lot on you, right? I didn't have to like protect my kids from seeing his like breakdowns too. Cause I want to make sure this is not super traumatic for them mm-hmm. either. So again, it was just like easier, all easier all around without him there. But, um, but it still, it was really hard. It was, it was very lonely for me. It was very like, it was a very scary time for me still because although like he was alive, I didn't know what was going to happen when he came back home. 
would he be fixed? You know, putting like air quotes on fixed. Obviously, I didn't think he was like broken, but would he be significantly better? Would he be functional? You know, what would our relationship look like? Would he still want to be with this other person? Would he not? Would he still want to be with me? You know, if his therapist so and him convinced him like he and I are just friend zoned, you know? Mm-hmm. So many questions, so many concerns. And so um, the the biggest thing that, that helped me was like just repeating this mantra over and over to my head, into, to, into my head, don't panic. Like it was like what we were talking about earlier. You don't need to panic. What's coming will come and we'll meet it when it does, like Hagrid says. I remember you guys chose that um, or you said that in the beginning of 2019, I think, or to, was it this? No, I think it was 2019. What's coming will come and we'll meet it when it does. And I just like kept repeating that to, to myself as well. And don't panic. And I had uh, two friends who knew the situation. One who was familiar with limerence because she's, she had experienced it herself. Mm-hmm. And another who um, I met through one of our meetups and I was talking with you, Katie, and a couple other ladies. We weren't all that very close yet, but I was able to like have one as as a confidant, and it was so so helpful. And I could like call her when I was spiraling out of control, wondering like, what if this? What if that? And I'm so scared. And I'm so anxious, and my life is like so everything's so unpredictable, and I don't know what's safe. Um, and she would, she was so good at being able to like talk me down and help me calm down. You're like, take deep breaths. It's okay. Like, don't worry about what he's saying about this other person in your relationship. Like he's crazy. He's cray cray. He's literally at a psychiatric (laughs) facility right now. It's okay. And I was like, that was extremely helpful. Another thing that really helped was, um, unloading my kids onto someone else. So when you're going through something like this, it's, it's not really fun to do it in front of the kids. Like it's not fun to have a breakdown in front of the kids that makes them not feel safe in their own house. I really tried to hold it together. and like, we're just going to close the door on that <laughs> until this evening when I can be alone and cry it out in my room, processing our emotions, giving ourselves space to, to cry or be angry or whatever is so, so important. You can't keep the lid on that for long before, you know, it manifests itself in unhealthy ways. So I made sure that I had those times to process that, that grief um, and anxiety that I was going through and really try to like normalize things for my kids, really trying to give them off to babysitters as much as I, as I could so that I could like just be alone and experience this and take as many breaks from them and from my other responsibilities as possible. Cause goodness knows I needed that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And I, I imagine that, I mean, I mean, it it definitely helps during the time that he's gone, but also, I mean, it's a, it's a continual process, right? Because John, are you still going to therapy? Are you both going to therapy together? What, what have you found that has been helpful after, after your stay in the treatment center? Uh, I mean, therapy has been hugely helpful. Um, Mm -hmm. I have a great psychiatrist and a great therapist. Mm -hmm. We went through a couple of different therapists and I actually found one through Rachel, who is a former member of the church and Mm -hmm. totally gets it. Like he's done the mission thing, he's done the temple thing, he's done the leaving the church thing. and, And it has been enormously helpful to have him digging into all of the things that I need to work through. Alan, you had asked, do I still struggle with 
issues like last year. What do you still have to do? Like what effort do you still need to put into, you know, your mental health? Yeah. So um, I've been going to therapy one to two times a week. It depends on the week. Probably the, the biggest thing that I have to remember as I go through this journey is that when I'm remembering this person and I still feel like that person is so special that mm-hmm. <laughs> there's like this irrational, I don't know if, if, if pedestal could be a verb, I would <laughs> pedestal this woman, right? I'm, I'm pedestaling her. And it's so true. And my brain knows that not real. That's a projection that I'm putting onto her. I don't know how to undo that projection. What I do know how to do is examine how I'm feeling and realize that that's a projection. Yeah. And know that that's what's happening. And, and that's what I have to do. Mild spoilers, actually big spoilers to a 20 year old film. It reminds me of a beautiful mind with Russell Crowe where he realizes he makes this realization that, Oh, these people that I'm seeing never age Mm -hmm. and they don't go away, but he learns to recognize the projections, the literal projections that he's seeing in his own mind. That's such a good parallel. It's so much like just spot on uh, to John's experience. Definitely. You deserve an Oscar, John. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It's been a really interesting journey obviously interesting. Uh, that's, that's one word for it. This is a, this is a really good transition into a lot of people listening to this may have had a break of them, their own. Uh, some of them very, very minor. Maybe someone has had even something more severe than when you experience if possible. Right, John. I mean, there's, there's other people. So the question really, you know, we find ourselves in a mixed faith marriage and, or transitioning away from a deeply held belief system that there are some breaks. So what advice would you give for people that are starting to recognize or their spouse is starting to recognize that something's not quite right when mental health starts to starts to turn? What, what advice would you give? A couple things. I would say be kind to yourself and show yourself compassion because we are always our most harsh critics. And when you're going through something like leaving the church or just doubting your testimony in the church, questioning your faith. It's so anxiety producing and it's so worrisome because it throws into question your, your future, everything, you know, right. You have to be compassionate with yourself. You're essentially upturning your whole life. So it's very, very difficult. Another thing that I would say is try to give yourself uh, positive reinforcement. What I mean is actually tell yourself good things about yourself. Rachel had talked about the don't panic thing that she kept telling herself. Mine, when I was in the psych facility that I eventually settled on was, you can do this. You can do this. You can do this. I remember standing in front of the mirror when I was in the psych facility and I'm like, you can do this. <laughs> and I'm like crying at the psych facility, but I'm saying this to make myself feel this emotion. And eventually I did. Um, You know, the power of thought is incredible. I think that I didn't realize that positive reinforcement could be so beneficial prior to this. Maybe those two. Get a therapist, obviously. (laughs) Get a therapist and a psychiatrist to support you as you go through the journey. You might need psychiatric treatment and you don't even know it. 
I'm going to add two things to that too. Um, number one is get the, get a provider, get a therapist or a psychiatrist, both preferably, um, and book it right now because mm-hmm. some, sometimes you'll find someone that's like, this feels like this is going to be a good match. This person is affordable. I want, I want them. And you out. call up. Yeah. You three call up and, and find out they're not taking appointments until three, four, you know, mm-hmm. months out. So book your appointment right now. You can always cancel it. If you change your mind or you find someone you like better, no problem. Just book it right now because they fill up. The second thing I want to say is it starts with acknowledging that something's not right inside. Like having that awareness is really, really tough, especially when you're the one going through it. So if you have a supportive person or if you are the supportive person, helping them to recognize like, this is not yourself. <laughs> Something is wrong here. Um, and don't ever fall into the the temptation of like comparing trauma saying like, well, this person had like a really, really big T trauma and yeah. mine is just like a little tea. It's not that big of a deal. Like I yeah. shouldn't be so, having this bad of a reaction yeah. to it. So, I should be able to handle this, <laughs> this self. If your brain is looking for effective coping mechanisms and it's going from like one thing to another, trying to find something that's going to help numb the pain inside, like start thinking about finding someone for uh, to help you with mental health. It's great advice. Yeah, that is really good advice. And I've learned that I just need a spouse like Rachel to do all of the all of the work and yeah. finding. Yes, I'm not trading you in, Alan. Well, I mean, you're on Marco Polo with her a lot. I well, there's, there, I hear yeah. there is a possibility about polygamy eventually becoming a thing again. And you, oh, oh, John, don't you you throw that in at the very end? Well. Yeah. Something we wanted, we do want to do is um, Rachel and John have done something super awesome and have created a YouTube channel. And um, Rachel, do you want to talk about that for us? It's mostly all Rachel. It's it's my baby. It's, it's my hers. project, and he comes on as like a guest speaker. Yeah. <laughs> sure, like right at the beginning of 2019, I also had to keep telling myself like, don't panic, because I started having my own faith transition. Mm-hmm. And throughout the year, um, kind of like separate from like what he was going through, I was having my own transition and like journey. Mm-hmm. So um, where I am now is I consider myself post-Mormon. He is too. My channel is called Post-Mormon Parenting. And I go through topics that I find are like things that I had learned the hard way or things that I've like really studied about and share that on my channel because I think that might be helpful for people who are watching, who are trying to like deconstruct their deeply held beliefs, Mm -hmm. you know, and like analyze things and kind of look at things in a new way and say like, what are we going to do when our kids turn eight? Mm -hmm. You know, what are we going to do when their neighbors are getting baptized and my kids aren't? What about all these great experiences that I had growing up because of the church? Like, how can I give that to my kids while I'm not raising them in the church? So I go through a lot of topics like that. Um, So if you're interested, check out, you know, post-Mormon parenting on YouTube. And if you want to get in touch with me also, if you guys have any follow-up questions about things you heard today, Um, you can send me an email. My email address is postmormonparentingchannel at gmail.com. So it's all one word. There's no punctuation or anything there. Just postmormonchannel at, sorry, postmormonparentingchannel at gmail.com. That'd be helpful if you the right one. <laughs> also on Instagram, so you can find me there. But anyway, well, yeah. Ra- Rachel, really- I would like to attempt a quick editorial side note, if okay. I may. There are many people in mixed faith marriages 
that look at the spouse in your position that has also left. And that's really difficult for them to hear. And it's really difficult for them to accept that there's something in us. And it's similar. I mean, it's something that you have already talked about deeply in this episode where there's something in them that is fearing the future of like, oh my gosh, Rachel is what I don't want to happen to me. Like, I don't want, <laughs> I don't want to have to change. I don't want to Rachel yourself. Oh my gosh. That's I, right. I'm going to interrupt your question to say, I felt that exact same way when you guys started your like January, 2019 episode and Kitty's like, I have an announcement today. I was like, no, no, don't, don't say do it. Kitty. Don't say you've gone to the dark side too. Anyway, sorry. What was sorry. the announcement? I don't even remember. I, can't I don't remember. remember. I don't know. Either. Like new couches or something, you know. But not but, <laughs> that's right. That's probably <laughs> that what it was. Sounds right. yeah. So, I mean, it, anyway, I, I want to just say to all the listeners uh, that may have those types of feelings that every single outcome is completely legitimate yeah. and equally as valid. We had someone today reach out to us and she was, she used the phrase like, you know, this has been the biggest mistake of my life. And I said, stop, just stop it. That's, that's not fair to yourself. John, you mentioned that you have to be fair to yourself and your journey is yours. Rachel's journey is hers. There can be high levels of nuance all the way to, I agree. And I'm leaving as well. And there can be absolutely no nuance and even further doubling down on orthodoxy and marriage can still work. Just in case anybody was was listening to Rachel talking about her departure, and obviously we didn't get into the faith crisis story with you, and Rachel, and the transition very detailed, but thanks for uh, letting me editorialize for a moment. But I'm so glad you brought that up. Yes. I, in, in defense of my friend, <laughs> yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, I'm going to say, you know, I, one thing that I really appreciate about Rachel, especially, is that she's so empathetic to where anyone is in their own journey and so respectful yes. of, of where they are that, you know, in our last episode, I hope I can bring this up, but in our last episode, we talked about miracles and she called me the other night and she said, Katie, if you feel like you can't talk about miracles in our group because it's uncomfortable or you think like, oh, you, I can't share that with you because we don't feel the same way anymore. Um, I totally understand it. And you can, you can message people, you know, outside of the group and leave me out of it if you want. And, and I just felt like that was like the most beautiful gesture of a friend. That's a true friend. Someone who is just willing to sit with you and listen to you and, and wants you to do what's best for for you. And so, um, I, I'm going to say I've been super blessed by the rage, the friendship we've had. Cause I've never felt any judgment. I've never felt any push to like get into things I don't want to know or, or, um, to be swayed in any way. And that's the type of person she is. And she is, a, she is like a wealth of knowledge about this subject that we're talking about today. And she has helped, I know she's helped um, people who have been in this position talk them through exactly what they need to do. So if you are in this spot, you want to reach out. I, I want to encourage you to reach out because 
both of them are extremely lovely and are respectful and compassionate. And um, that's my plug for you because I love you both so much. You're so sweet. I'm so, so grateful to have you as a friend. <laughs> if there is any level any small level of healthy limerence, Katie has it for Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's our Marco Polo quote. <laughs> anything, anything you would guys, you guys would like to leave our listeners with before we head out. I had one more thing and sure. we had a therapy session and this was like my other thing that I wanted to share that that was really, really meaningful in addition to the ER thing. So we had a, a meeting where he walked us through some guided imagery and I'm going to tell you what he told me. And it was really, really impactful for me. Uh, I think it was the, probably the first time through this whole experience where I actually felt self-compassion. Oh, okay. I am in a place where I am needing help and I'm okay with that. He had us all close our eyes and he said, imagine that you're in your house and you're sitting at your table and it's your birthday and there is the person or a person that you love so much they're with you and they're you know one of your favorite people to be with and just imagine who whoever that person is and they're sitting across from you and they gave you this fabulous delicious looking cupcake they had a cupcake happy birthday it has a candle in it and they it's lit and it's ready to be blown out. So you blow it out and make your happy birthday wish. And you see the smoke rise up into the air. And as the smoke rises up into the air, all of your own problems, all of your own issues and concerns and worries and depression, anxiety, all of that goes up into the smoke. And as it's in the air, you're looking at it and you see it slowly descend onto the person that's sitting in front of you that person that you love so much. And now all of their problems include the problems that you're currently experiencing. How would you treat that person? What would you say to that person? And that's exactly what you need to say to yourself. That was hugely impactful for me. Mm -hmm. Awesome visual and kind of mental exercise we can all go through. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Rachel, any last words from you, my friend? Uh, Katie's friend? <laughs> 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 yeah, actually. So while he was in Tennessee, and I, I learned this is pretty common with these residential treatment programs, is that they invite significant others or like close family members to come mm. for a few days. They call it like family week, or for me, it was family three days. And one of the things that they talked about there was so just like aha moment, so inspiring. They talked about how when we process emotions, it's so, so helpful to process it process them with another person and but it can't just be anybody it's got to be someone you trust someone that's going to be really really safe someone that's not going to be critical of you or judgmental or criticize you for what you're going through or what uh, your coping mechanisms are and how like if if we want to get better like we have to practice these emotions and if you're going to do it with another person which is really really helpful um, it's got to be a safe person and so then it was kind of uh, the conversation turned toward us as like the supportive spouses. Like if you want to be a safe person and you don't have to be the safe person or the only safe person, but if you want to be a safe person for 
your loved one who's going through this really hard time, um, you have to be like really, really non-judgmental, really not critical, um, just like totally as much empathy as you can as you can muster. And so for me, like when John came home and he picked up a couple of things that I considered bad habits, <laughs> like really unhealthy coping mechanisms, I had to like really swallow all that down and dig deep into my empathy and be like, I understand. I see you must be having a lot of pain inside if you're looking to these kinds of things for numbing and self and uh, anesthetic. Oh my gosh, I can't speak. Anesthetizing. And self-anesthetizing, yeah. As the supportive spouse or the supportive loved one, um, it's just so, so critical to be compassionate and understanding and, and loving. But I think even even uh, like above all, what, what we humans need, especially if we're going through a hard time, is understanding. Mm-hmm. Like we've got to be just so understanding. Why, why do you feel that way? Tell me about how, you, how you're feeling. Yeah. But yeah. With, Zero judgment. Yeah. 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 Otherwise, you're never going to meet. You're never going to meet eye to eye. You'll never understand each other, and you'll never be able to move past. I think both of your words are super wise, really helpful. Not just for someone who's going through a mental health crisis, but I think that you can say that for someone going through a faith transition, this this works in every scenario in a marriage right? No matter what the other spouse is experiencing. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that is very helpful information. And we just want to say thank you so so much for taking the time to talk about this hugely important topic that um, I think will resonate with a lot of people. And you've given some really good information and um, just a really good roadmap, I think, for some people to follow if, if they do need help. So Rachel and John, thank you for being on Marriage on a Tightrope. Thank you so much. Thank you. We've had a good time. Yeah, so so happy to be able to be here and share our story. When it's done, we're gonna see that it was better that we grew up together. Tell me you don't wanna leave. Cause if change is what you need, you can change right next to me. When you're high, I'll take the lows You can ebb and I can flow We'll take it slow And grow as we go Grow as we go Grow as we go go.